Well, good morning. Thank you for joining us. We're going to continue in our adult Sunday school hour. Come on in and find your seats. And uh, we're going to pray here shortly. And we're going to continue our Sunday school lesson on the topic of evangelism. Would you bow your heads with me and uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have this morning to look into your word, to understand um, what it is you've articulated to us as your people about your mission of spreading the good news that Jesus came and died for sinners. I pray this morning that you would help us to understand clearly from your word uh, these important truths so that we might live differently. We don't just need to be informed, but as we often say, Lord, we are asking for your grace to transform the way we think, that you would transform our affections, uh, the way we feel, our desires, and that you would make us more like your son, Jesus Christ, that we might live in a way that is pleasing in your sight, a sweet aroma to you, Lord. We love you, and we ask for your help in these things, and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, I wanted to take a little bit of time to review where we've been uh, before we kind of launch into where we're going to go today. So in the uh, topic of evangelism, we're seeking to understand what is it that's our mission? What's our goal? What's our aim? And what we've been talking about, um, first and foremost, needs to start with the goal of everything that we find in Scripture. The goal of everything is to glorify God. Paul would write to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 10.31 to say, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we are to do all to the glory of God. And that includes evangelism. Evangelism does glorify God. And when we're proclaiming the gospel, when we're sharing the good news with others, what happens is Paul also would write to that same church in, his, uh, in 2 Corinthians talking about a sweet aroma to Christ. When we're declaring the truth, when we're living according to the gospel, what happens is there's a sweet fragrance to the Lord. And he says, to those who are living, it's sweet, and to those who are dying, it's death. But the fragrance itself is glorifying to God. So we need to remember, first and foremost, the foundation of why we do evangelism is for God's glory. But what is it that we do? What do we do in evangelism? What we do is we proclaim the gospel. And that's what we spent the last several weeks talking through and understanding clearly from Scripture what is the gospel. What are the elements that are consistent with the content of the gospel? And what we laid out over the last several weeks was there clearly are four parts to the gospel. And it starts with who God is. We need to understand the personal, infinite, triune God. That he is the creator of all the universe. That he's made everything and therefore he makes the rules. We are created. He is the creator. But what we also understand is that man has broken those rules. According to God's word, man, a creation of God's, has sinfully rebelled against its creator. And that puts us in a state of enmity. We are at war with God in our sinful state. And because we are sinners, we have a just God who is rightfully waiting to pour out his wrath on mankind. But the good news is, the third piece, is that Jesus Christ has come. Jesus Christ is the second person of the Godhead, perfectly and totally co-equal, co-eternal with God himself. And he took on human flesh. And he did this so that we could have a substitute, so that he could obey perfectly in our place, and he could die sufficiently and satisfactorily in our place as well. That's the good news that Jesus came to die for sinners like us. 
And lastly, the fourth piece of the gospel that we've reviewed is that there has to be a response. So when we share these these pieces of the puzzle, so to speak, when we're telling the good news of the gospel, we need to make sure that people understand you must respond to the gospel. And there's only two responses. You either respond in faith or you respond in fearful rejection. You either reject Christ or you submit to Christ as king. Those are the responses, either one of trust and faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation or one that says, I am going to continue in my own path. I am going to choose to reject God and go my own way. This is uh, the first two elements of what we've been talking through in evangelism, that we need to glorify God in what we're doing. And God is glorified when we tell the good news of what God has done for sinners. This is what we are called to do in proclaiming the gospel as God's people. Last piece of the puzzle in evangelism is we also need to talk about is a desire for sinners to be saved. In scripture, we see over and over again in the proclamation of the gospel, there's this yearning, this longing, this desire. Paul would say in 2 Timothy 2.10, he said, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul was eager and yearning that the elect might be saved. And we need to understand, and that's what we're going to talk about a lot today, is just because God's election makes salvation in the future sure doesn't mean conversion has yet happened. We want to see people made alive through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that's why we yearn and we, we are eager to see people saved through the proclamation of the gospel. Paul would uh, articulate this same desire in Romans 9-11. He said, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, referring to the Jews. That's, that's a strong statement to say, I long so desperately to see people come to salvation in Christ that I myself would wish that I would lose it so that they would gain it. That's a sacrifice that's beyond what we probably can fathom, but that's the sacrifice of, of a yearning, desirous heart to see sinners come to faith in Jesus Christ. This is the heart of evangelism. It's a heart that desires to glorify God through proclaiming his gospel with a desire, a heart to see sinners saved. Now that we've reviewed our aim in evangelism and specifically the gospel, we need to understand what it is that we desire to see happen to the lost. We desire to see them saved, but what is this? How does scripture articulate this? We need to know what it is that we are actually looking for in that response, in that fourth step of the gospel. What it is we're aiming to see or desiring to see according to scripture. And what we are calling people to. We need to understand what the topic of biblical conversion is. What is biblical conversion? Well, I remember when I first hear this word, the thing that comes to my mind in, uh, if you recall, elementary school maybe, or maybe it was high school time, but I remember conversion tables, maybe because I'm a math nerd, but I think about when something has a certain sort of unit, you have this kind of T-chart across, and you're converting from one sort of unit to another. And conversion, at the heart of it, really means change. If there's one word for conversion, what it means is change, to go from one place to another. To convert is often a term we think of in regards to sharing the gospel. And this idea of conversion found in scripture, it really has two essential components. There are two essential components to conversion. The first is regeneration. And we're going to talk this morning, what does this term regeneration mean? 
How does scripture talk about regeneration? Who is the one who does regeneration? What actually transpires when it happens? And how is it actually accomplished? Secondly, we're going to talk about a second essential component of conversion, which would be repentance. Repentance and faith. And we're going to talk about how these two pieces of the puzzle interlink, how they interact under this topic of conversion, and also specifically what is scripture um, according to repentance and faith. How does scripture define those terms? So first, this morning we're going to look at regeneration. Let's look at regeneration together. This is actually the first step of salvation from death to life. So when we're talking about this idea of change under the heading of conversion, regeneration is the first step of salvation from someone who becomes, who starts as dead in their sins and God makes them alive spiritually. I like MacArthur and Mayhew's definition of regeneration. They said regeneration is the sovereign act of God by the Holy Spirit and through the preached gospel whereby he instantaneously imparts spiritual life to a sinner bringing him out of spiritual death and into spiritual life. And I think this definition really is, is helpful in understanding who, how, and what. So first, let's start with the who. Who actually does this work of regeneration according to Scripture? Well, according to Scripture, it would be God alone. God is the one who does the work of regeneration. And we see this in John chapter 1, in the opening um, chapter of John's Gospel. He says in verse 12 and 13, he says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, referring to Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God. Continues, he says, Those who were born not of blood, meaning they're not born into spiritual life, through some sort of family lineage. You're not just born into the kingdom because you're a Jew. He says, Nor of the will of flesh, So he's saying not of some sort of good works or self-made righteousness. And the third thing he mentions is not of the will of man. Meaning there's not this man-made religious rule system that actually allows you to be born again. That actually gives you the right to become children of God. Rather he says it is but of God. So without the commentary now let me read verse 13. Those who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Very clear. The one who does this new birth, who makes us alive, is God alone. Secondly, in the topic of regeneration, we need to understand how it is done. How is this work of being um, changed from those who are dead to those who are made alive happen? Well, clearly scripture lays out the means by which this happens is through the Holy Spirit and the gospel. And we see this clearly in several passages. First, let's look at the Holy Spirit. Uh, familiar to us as we've just taught through the book of Titus, Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us and us in unrighteousness, but according to his own mercy. And he says, How? How did this happen? He says, By the washing of regeneration. And renewal of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is involved in the action of regeneration. Paul would say this uh, also in 1 Corinthians 6.11. And he says, such were some of you, talking to these Corinthians, he says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. How? He says, 
by the Spirit of our God. The Holy Spirit is the one who God um, declares makes us alive again when we're dead. So what is the instrument, though? The sole instrument, according to Scripture, is this message, this good news, this truth is the gospel. Peter would write about this in 1 Peter 1.23. He says, since you have been born again, born again being a key word with regeneration, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed. He says, through the living and abiding word of God. It's God's word that God uses to make his people his children. First, uh, we also would see that Paul would say this in Romans 1.16, famously understood and known Memorized by many is, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, but it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So we need to understand not only that God is the only one who does this act of regeneration, but how he does it is through the Holy Spirit and through the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ came and he died for sinners, for all those who would believe in him. And I think it's, it's really picturesque when we see God's word, his truth, the gospel, described in scripture as the sword of the spirit. We get to partake in this amazing act in evangelism where we are speaking the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit. And the spirit itself takes his sword and penetrates the heart of lost people to make them alive. I think it's really amazing when we think about the work that the Holy Spirit is doing actively today. We get to be a part of this beautiful process of evangelism that God does to make people alive. So thirdly, that would be the what it does. Is, is What it does is it gives spiritual life. Regeneration gives spiritual life. And we see this um, clearly laid out in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes and he says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he says, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is the act of regeneration. It's God making dead people alive. What we're involved with in this this beautiful calling for God's people to evangelism is not about making bad people good, but it's about making dead people alive. And that's what God is aiming to do in and through the faithful and obedient work of evangelism through his people. And we see um, really two key passages. So I've listed out several, but when you think about the idea of regeneration, about Uh, being made alive. There's really two primary passages to look at, two key texts that we find. One is in Ezekiel chapter 36, and the other would be in John chapter 3, where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. First, I want to read for you Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27. The prophet writes, um, and this is God who speaks, he's saying, I will sprinkle clean water on you. This is God talking to his people. He says, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you instead a heart of flesh And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my 
rules. What God is communicating over the Old Testament is that man cannot, in and of themselves, obey God's law perfectly. And all these passages we read in Scripture, there's never a man that is good enough, that is righteous enough, that is obedient perfectly in God's eyes. And what we see this culmination building to is that what man needs is a new heart. They need to be made clean, and they need to be given God's spirit. This idea of cleansing and creating are two important words that go into this idea of regeneration according to Scripture. There's cleansing or washing, and there's creating. There's making something new. We need a new heart, a new spirit. And this is the same ideas that Jesus himself picks up when he's talking to a Pharisee of the Pharisees, the chief teacher, Nicodemus. In John chapter 3 Jesus is, uh, says, he's, he answers Nicodemus, and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said back to Jesus, he said, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Clearly having some communication confusion. He's saying that's not something that's realistic, Jesus. What do you mean? And here Jesus answers, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, same idea of cleansing that Ezekiel was, um, we find in Ezekiel, and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus here is teaching Nicodemus and so us about this important and vital aspect of evangelism. People must be born again. And again, he's iterating here the first part of regeneration, who it is that does it. It's God. He does it at his will when he desires. But this point of change, this point of conversion, starts with this first step, this essential step of regeneration. It is a work of God in the dead heart of unbelieving um, unbelievers so that they are then made alive to faith and obedience in Christ, to repentance. So Jesus is talking here to Nicodemus, and he clearly lays out this idea of being born again. But there's several other terms um, that we see Scripture talking about. We need to be born again. We need to be washed and made clean. We need to be made a new creation. And regeneration, we need to understand, is this one-time sovereign event that accomplished that is accomplished in an individual that makes them spiritually alive forever. It's a singular event in the life of a believer. And this event is something that we need to be um, praying for. So as we're evangelizing, it's easy for us to get in the mode of persuasion. And we do see that we ought to persuade, but we also ought to plead with God. We need to be pleading with God, Lord, make them alive. Bring them to life. Open God's word to them. Help them to see and understand the good news of the gospel so that they too will come to faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It starts with what God does in the heart of the unregenerate, and we need to pray to that end and have that expectation, an expectation that God is the one that does this according to his word. 
I need to believe it. It ought to be evident in the way that I evangelize. It ought to be evident in my faithfulness in evangelism, that I wouldn't grow weary thinking that I'm not saying the right thing or I missed something. To make it man-centered would get off of this, this central piece of conversion that starts with God's work of regeneration. But I think this, this term, regeneration, although it's a little uh, technical, not something that we would use um, in our common day speech, I think it's really important and helpful to us because it, it really emphasizes the idea of our sinfulness. Ephesians 2 talks about us being dead in our trespasses and sins. Romans 3, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So for unbelievers, when they are apart from God, when they are distant from him, they need this act of regeneration in their life. If they don't have this, the expectation of those that are sharing ought to be that the consequences of sin will not be seen as bad. They won't see sin and its consequences as bad as they ought to because they're blind. They won't see Christ as supremely glorious as he is because they are blind. But that doesn't mean we don't share. It doesn't mean we don't declare truth and ask for God's spirit to grab his sword to penetrate hearts of those who are blind. Because he can and does do that. By themselves, the unregenerate, the the sinner will always reject the gospel. And that's important for us to understand that they need to be born again. They need to be washed clean. They need to be made a new creation. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not something that's meant to be a rehabilitation tool. It's not something that's supposed to reform what's already existing. No, those are programs that are are all about behavior modification. Rather, the gospel of Jesus Christ is meant to give regeneration, to recreate, to make alive for the first time, to give spiritual life. And that is the good news that we share and we declare to those that are blind and lost and needing this truth in the world. Regeneration is not all that happens according to conversion, though. We see in Scripture this idea of regeneration, but we also see repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Often, um, repentance and faith is referred to as two sides of the same coin, and rightly so. So uh, how do we kind of uh, put these pieces of the puzzle together? Theologically speaking, or even in our own minds, how do we... How do we um, understand the correlation between regeneration and faith? Well, what we ought to understand is that regeneration has fruit. The results of regeneration are actually distinct from regeneration itself. And we need to see this because it's a triggering event that begins this life of repentance and faith. Although these, uh, these uh, components essential are essential, that referring to uh, faith and repentance... We need to understand that this is one singular event referred to as conversion. So, now that I've rambled for a little bit, let me just slow down, because this is important. Regeneration does not precede faith temporally. What I mean by that is it's not a timing of event distance. God doesn't make you alive, and then at some point later, you choose to respond in faith and repentance. These are instantaneous, simultaneous events in regards to time. But causally, that means in regards to cause and effect, there is a logical description in Scripture that regeneration must precede faith causally. And we see this illustrated in Scripture specifically with the idea 
of blind people. When Jesus would make blind people alive, there's this sort of barrier that's removed so that light can enter in. But it's one event that must be removed so that something can enter in. And I wanted to kind of show you basically my fancy drawing of stick people. So my artwork on computers is about as good as it is in person, but I try to make it realistic to what real life would look like so there's even a short arm in there. Okay, so we have a person, and let's say there's a barrier, and there's light that is trying to shine through. There is light that's shining, but that light cannot penetrate through this barrier of blindness. But when God does the work of making someone alive, what, they do, what he does is he removes this barrier so that the only natural necessary response is that of faith and repentance. So what happens is God removes sovereignly this barrier and the response is one of seeing, one of light, one that brings illumination. And that's what we see in God's word. We need to understand this relationship is, is not one of time. It is one event of conversion, but God does of his own will, of his own act, this monergistic work of regeneration. And man's response to this new mind, this new heart, this new appraisal of things and new affections and desires is one natural will act of repentance and faith. So we also see distinctions um, in accordance to uh, regeneration and repentance and faith. Regeneration is something that, as we saw, is done by God. But God is not the one who repents or expresses faith. Repentance and faith is something that God grants. That's what we see in Scripture. God grants repentance and faith, but regeneration is something that is done by God sovereignly. MacArthur and Mayhew are helpful here as well. They say, Scripture speaks of repentance and faith not as a sovereign decision of a human's will, but that which is spiritually granted as a gift of God's grace. God does not repent from sin or believe in Christ for the believer. God sovereignly awakens the sinner in regeneration so that he himself, in his personal conscience, and according to his renewed nature, necessarily turns from sin and trusts in Christ alone. God gives faith, but man acts faith. Man's act is absolutely dependent on God's gift. When we think about man's will, we need to understand that our will is an engine that operates on the fuel of desires. So when we have desires, we are acting out those desires according to our will. That's our nature. And what God does is he comes in and he says, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you new desires that see Christ rightly, that sees your sin rightly, sees who I am, sees your sinfulness, and says, your desire now is to turn from sin and to trust in Christ. And your desires being made new allow you to act in faith and repentance. This is the new man's response to this work of regeneration that God does. Just as a newborn babe cries out at birth, the immediate results of new life of the Christian is crying out to God in repentance and faith. These are the equivalent of breathing in and breathing out as essential characteristics of life. First, now, let's look at this idea, this biblical concept of repentance. Biblical concept of repentance. The simple definition for this word repentance is turning. 
It means to turn, specifically turn away from sin and turn towards Christ in faith. When we talk about the definition of repentance, I think there's a helpful threefold change, a change that we see in man's response. It starts with a change of mind. Repentance must start with a change of mind, and that moves on to a change of heart that results in a change of direction. As we talked about at the beginning with this topic of conversion, change is a key word, and we see that triggered here again in this idea of repentance. There must be a right recognition of our sinfulness to turn away. And we see this depicted with Mr. Stickman again. So what we see is a change of, uh, what we see is a change of mind that results in a change of heart that results then in a change of direction. Okay, this is kind of a silly little picture, but it helps us to depict in our mind there has to be a whole lot of change in this concept of repentance. We need to understand our thinking changes, our affections change because we're made alive, but that also results in a different direction. I liked how one, one of the books I read this week commented, I forget the author, but um, he mentioned that if you were to say it in one word, it's a change of worship. It's a change of worship. All three of these requires you in repentance to have something to say, I'm not going to worship this anymore. I am going to worship God. That's what repentance is. And I think Thomas Watson in his book, The Doctrine of Repentance, lists out six uh, ingredients to the true nature of repentance that are really helpful for us. Six ingredients that we ought to look for. And I think these are practical. I know they were for me in thinking through um, sharing the gospel with my kids or coworkers or friends, those people that are seemingly soft to this news and thinking through it and mulling over, how do I know if there's true repentance? Well, I think the Bible really lays out these six ingredients, um, and I would recommend um, Tom, Thomas Watson, the Puritan, his book on the doctrine of repentance. But to give you these briefly, um, he mentions sight of sin. True repentance requires us to see sin as God does. It also requires sorrow for sin. We must be grieved over our sin as God is grieved by sin. We also must confess our sin. There must be confession. The, the, the response of a grieved heart is one of overflow and confession to God. We must agree with God's judgment about our sin, that we have earned the wages of our sin. That's what confession does. It calls sin what God calls it and confesses it to him as the one we've sinned against. We also see shame for sin. We must recognize our guilt that is earned before God. We must also recognize that there in, in repentance there ought to be a hatred for sin. We ought to hate our sin the same way God hates our sin. If you're seeing this pattern, repentance is all about seeing things God's way. That's what repentance is, about seeing our sin God's way. And I loved the way uh, Thomas Watson uh, summarized. He said, Christ is never loved till sin be loathed. We have to understand that we must have a loathing, a hating of our sin for us to truly turn and trust in Jesus Christ alone. And that is the last step. We must turn from our sin if we are to see our sin, have sorrow and confess and shame and hate our sin, the natural result is to say, I don't want that. I am turning away from it in obedience to God, not in obedience to my sinful flesh anymore. So this is repentance, but the uh, flip side, we would say um, two sides to the same coin is often how it's referred to. The, the flip side of repentance is faith. 
faith. So by definition, we would look to uh, Romans chapter 4 is probably one of my favorite uh, depictions and definitions of faith. And Paul is talking um, about Abraham and how this promise of the covenant was started back in Genesis. And Abraham was told by God to look up at the stars in the night sky and to count them if he could. And he said, that's how many I will make your nation to be, this innumerable amount. And it, um, Paul's commentary um, on, the, uh, on Abraham's response to God, he says that he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. I think that's a really helpful definition when we think about faith. Faith is being fully convinced that God will keep his promises. That God will keep specifically his promise of salvation that he has accomplished through his son, Jesus Christ. And that, scripture says, is why faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Hebrews 11.6 also says, And without faith it is impossible to please God. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. This idea of faith is also uh, tied into um, man's uh, response to regeneration is that of turning. And what we need to understand is this turning in repentance says we turn away from sin, but we turn towards something else. Naturally, if we are to turn from sin, we must turn towards God. We look to Christ in faith. And what faith looks like is actual movement. Faith looks like obedience and walking in a direction that says, I'm actually pursuing this now. I'm not going towards my sin. Instead, I'm turning and trusting in Jesus Christ and going in that direction. And I think it's helpful when we're thinking through this idea of faith to think about three ingredients to faith. If we are calling people to respond in faith to Jesus Christ, there are three elements we ought to be looking for. And really, these can help even inform your questions that you ask in evangelism, and especially when you're thinking about a response. So first, we would say that faith requires knowledge. You actually need to know information. I can't trust in something that I don't know information about. There is an actual download of knowing. That's why we rehearse and talk about the gospel, who God is, who man is, and who Christ is. There's information that needs to be transferred. But more than just information, we need them to actually affirm it. So to affirm something is to say, I believe that's true. To affirm it is to say, yes, that's true, and I know it's right. To say not just that I know facts historically about this person of Jesus Christ, but I think Jesus is a real person, that he really died and he really rose again and he is coming back again. To be confident, to be convinced that these things are true. But if we are to simply stop at knowing and affirming, Scripture actually warns against this sort of insufficient belief. James talks in his letter, he would write and say that even the demons believe and tremble, but they don't have a sort of belief that is counted as righteousness, a sort of faith and trust in God. And what's lacking is this third piece, this element of reliance. True faith not only knows and affirms things to be true, but it affirms the gospel and it relies on it. And this is the dependence piece. This is the trusting piece that says, not only am I um, aware of the, the concept of a chair, and not only do I believe the chair actually can hold my weight, but I'm actually going to get into the seat and put my full weight in the chair and say, I'm depending on this. I'm relying on this for something. 
And so when we are talking to people about the gospel, we can say, do you know who Jesus Christ is? Do you, do you know who he is and what he's done, what he claimed to be? Oh, yeah, I know who Jesus is. Well, do you actually think he rose from the dead? Do you think that Jesus is actually alive today and he's going to fulfill his promises that he's made? Yeah, I, I believe that's true. I, I believe that's true. How, how, are your, how is your life reflecting that? How are you depending on Jesus as your Savior today? If you were to die today and you were to stand before God, how, how, what would you say if he was to say, why should I let you into my heaven? What are you depending on for your salvation? These are helpful terms and breakdowns for faith to say, how do I interrogate somebody's heart to the level that I really can't know for sure, but I'm calling them to faith and trust, and I want to make sure that they know certain things. I want to make sure that they're, they're actually believing that those things are true and that they're actually trusting and relying and dependent on him. That's what we're calling people to, a sort of faith that is lived out. I love what uh, Paul says in Galatians 2.20, and I'll just close with this verse because I think it really helps capsize and, or, or uh, cut off or end this section of, of our study on um, conversion, but it, it ties together a lot of these concepts. And he says, uh, Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. He says, it's no longer I who live. There's this new life, this new creation. He says, it's Christ who lives in me. This is new. And he says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus died for sinners. And I would encourage you guys to think through this concept of conversion, that there's this point of change, and we ought to be eager to call people to this sort of life change. It's not something that's casual of try Jesus on like a pair of shoes. Just try it on for a little bit and see if it works out for you, but rather we actually ought to hold people back because that's when the people will come through that can't be stopped. We ought to say, no, did you really count the cost here? I'm not, I'm not telling you that you need to quit smoking, quit drinking, or, or quit doing these bad habits. What I'm telling you is you need to submit to Jesus Christ as your sovereign King and Lord because he's the only one that can save you from sin and give you life eternal with himself. And until you are desperately needing Jesus, you are not at the point where you can say in confidence, I know my King, and I know he has saved me, and I know he will bring me home. And that's what we want people to see. We want to see God do this amazing work in people's hearts and minds so that they're made alive and that they are so eager and desirous to walk in obedience to their Savior that their life is no longer compartmentalized or self-serving, but rather they'd rather submit their whole life to God's word and God's truth to obey and glorify God forever as his child. Next week, uh, we'll continue um, with our study on evangelism. Uh, we're going to be talking through the concept of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in this topic of evangelism. So I hope that you'll come back um, to continue in our study together <coughs> as we seek to have a greater understanding of the gospel so that we would zealously and compassionately proclaim it to sinners all for the glory of our good and merciful God. If you're interested in some more resources in regards to this topic of conversion, I would encourage for you, um, John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew's Biblical Doctrine is a really helpful resource. We encourage people to have at least one per home. It's a biggie. 
but there's some short books. If you're just interested on specifically this topic, Conversion is one that has been one of my favorite books in the Nine Mark series, and also one of our favorites that we hand out to, to visitors and guests. Uh, we love using it, the Gospel Track version, but this, this book called What is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert as well. So if you're interested in those resources, please do um, pursue those as they would be helpful to you in your understanding and your growing in this topic of conversion as we aim to glorify God through evangelism. With that, uh, you're dismissed. We'll be back here in a few minutes for our worship service at 1030.